the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, episode 54. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. This is your host, Rachel Kennerly, and we're recording once again from the Storybook Inn Studios. So glad you guys have decided to join us today. I think it's going to be a great episode. We're going to talk about the endocannabinoid system. But before we get into that, I want to do a little housekeeping. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you'd give us a rating or review on the podcast catcher that you use. That gives a boost to the algorithm, and the podcast catcher will actually recommend our show to other listeners. So if you go out and search for cannabis, maybe Cannabis Heals Me will pop up in the search engine. Or when somebody's listened to another podcast down at the bottom, it'll make a recommendation that says, here's some other shows we think you might like. So every review and rating that we get helps the algorithm pick us up and recommend us to more people. We'd love for you to get on our email newsletter list. If you go out to CannabisHealsMe.com, there will be a pop-up that says, do you want to subscribe? Please go ahead and put your email address in there and subscribe. I send out two or three emails a week, sometimes less than that because I forget to send out an email. But if you sign up from that, anything exciting or interesting or that we need to get a hold of you immediately, because we only do two podcasts a week. So if it's on a day that we don't do a podcast, and I feel like there's some important information that I want to get out to you. I can't do that if you're not on my email newsletter list. So CannabisHillsMe.com, sign up for the email newsletter list. We will not fill your inbox with spam or send a bunch of uninteresting, uninformational information. Well, you may think it's uninteresting. But to me, it will be interesting. It's something I want to pass on to you. And we can't always get that information out to you in a timely fashion and in the way that we want just using social media because there's so much junk out there. If you're like me, you have like, you know, 5 million friends and you don't see half of your friends posts because there's so much other stuff out there and all the advertising. Get on the email newsletter list and then that won't be a problem. We can make direct contact with you. If you know someone who would like to share their story on the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, we would love to hear from them. Just send me an email, podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com, and we'll try and get that arranged and make uh, make an appointment with them to get them on the show. We, we want more of these stories to get out. So if there's somebody who has a diagnosis that maybe we haven't covered here on the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, and you want them to share their story so that we can reach out to other people that may have that condition, we want to hear from them. Podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. They can also look us up on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MJ Heals Me. And you can find us over on Instagram at Cannabis Heals Me. I'm also on Twitter and I'm not very good at Twitter. Really, I'm not that great at social media, period. But I'm probably the least proficient with Twitter. And my handle over there is at the grow CFO dot no not dot com, just at the grow CFO. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm really excited about today's episode. We're going to have Denise Foster come on and talk to us about the endocannabinoid system, what it is, what it does. So if you've got somebody who thinks cannabis isn't medicine, who's never heard of the endocannabinoid system, 
I invite you to tell them about this episode of the podcast, especially if it's someone in the medical field. I think they'll find today's episode, maybe even more than the other episodes, very interesting and very informative. And it's someone who is well qualified to speak on this subject. I think it's somebody that someone else in the medical field will give a lot of credence to what she has to say because of her background and because of her education. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest and uh, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. I'd love to get some feedback on this podcast after you listen to it. If you learned something that you hadn't learned that you didn't know before, I would love to hear from you. And I'd also like to see what did you enjoy most about today's episode? So you can do that. Send me an email podcast at cannabisheelsme.com or you can comment on a social media post that I've made about this particular episode. I'm going to go ahead and warn you that the audio is not quite as good as it normally is. We had a bad connection and there's some feedback and popping and I apologize for that. And it's probably all on me because I am not a technical person. We tried a couple of tweaks and they just didn't really help. There were still some some glitches along the way. So just try to listen past that and listen to the content and what Denise is presenting. So without further delay, here is our guest. I am joined today by Denise Foster. She is a PhD, MSN, and a certified nurse educator. And she is currently writing a chapter on the endocannabinoid system for the first ever cannabis nursing textbook. And I've been looking for quite some time to have somebody come on and talk to us about the endocannabinoid system. And Denise seemed like the perfect candidate. So welcome, Denise, to the program. Thank you. Well, I guess my first question to you is, how did this textbook come about and how did this opportunity come about for you? Back in July in 2019, um, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing published their national nursing guidelines for medical marijuana. And in this, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing have uh, endorsed for all nurses in the United States to understand, first of all, their state legislation and, and laws governing uh, medicinal cannabis and recreational cannabis, but also for all nurses to understand the endocannabinoid system and both the endocannabinoids and the phytocannabinoids, because we're, you know, uh, as, as we know, with legalization across across the country, we're finding that cannabis is a drug. Mm-hmm. Surprise! And, um, and as a drug, uh, nurses need to be aware of how it interacts with the body, how it interacts with other substances like other drugs or uh, caffeine. It, it's a drug like every other drug. And so with the NCSBN's endorsement of nurses rec- uh, acknowledging and understanding and being educated on the endocannabinoid system and all that it entails, it was time to start the process of developing a, a textbook that specifically addressed this. Um, I've been a nurse for over 35 years and uh, I'm in, in teaching nursing in all of my classes. I teach pharmacology and, and med surge. We have always learned and we have always taught that that cannabis is a drug of abuse. So the only small tidbit that we have in our nursing and medical textbooks and even our drug textbooks is the fact that cannabis is a drug of abuse. And because of the lack of research and the lack of scientific acknowledgement in our medical and nursing textbooks, you're not, you know, you're not going to find a valid entry in relation to how it is it works in the body and really we've just uh, discovered this information 
within the last 30 years. And with, of course, within that last 30 years, it's been federally illegal as a mm -hmm. Schedule One drug. So the research has been limited. There's been a stigma against it. It's taboo to talk about it. But as, nurse, as nurses, we all know our patients talk about it. Um, we, we meet with our patients and they will admit to usage to us because we're the non-judgmental. We we don't um, we don't want to know. Uh, we want to know everything about why you're using what you're using, and how that is going to affect your health. And so, as the holistic practitioners, nurses have been the ones that are going to be the most trustworthy in relation to, hey, you can tell me what you're taking because I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you manage your health and help you understand what you're doing impacts your health. Yeah. Now, where will this textbook be used? Is it going to be used across the country or just there where you're located? No, this is through Walters Kluwer Health Publishers. So this is a, a, a subsidiary of Lippincott Williams and uh, uh, LWW. I can't, I'm, uh, Lippincott Williams and I can't remember the second or the third title, but this is a large health publisher. It is one of the most significant nursing textbook publishers. I have many of my textbooks that I use come from Walters Kluwer. Mm -hmm. And this was something that uh, came to, to me as an opportunity through my position as the secretary and board of director member at the American Cannabis Nurses Association. Okay. So they kind of shopped it around and, and they said, we know Denise is the perfect person to write this chapter for you. Oh, I, I I like to think that, but <laughs> with with my uh, with my with my uh, knowledge and my background in home health and in education and in in writing courses and in understanding how to develop you know a, a formidable paper, which is what a chapter is, it it all kind of fell together. So I'm very I'm very fortunate to be in the in the place at the at the right time, and the right uh, with knowing the right people and and absolutely with the right um, with the right movement behind me. Um, this is a movement that many nurses across the country are are joining and uh, they're finding out about our organization, the American Cannabis Nurses Association. They're finding that um, they can join in either legal or illegal states. It doesn't matter because of this NCSBN guideline that was published saying that nurses need to understand and need to recognize how this cannabis and endocannabinoid relationship works. Now, this will be taught to nursing students, or will this be some, like, you know, a lot of nurses, well, my, two of my sister-in-laws are nurses, and they have to do continuing education. So will this be available as a continuing education course for them as well? That's the big question mark. Um, as a textbook, the textbook will be available for purchase. Okay. So with the, with the NCSBN uh, publishing these guidelines last summer, in 2018, the thought process is that every three years, the NCSBN writes a new NCLEX RN. Uh, the, this is the national nursing test yeah. for nurses to receive licensure. The thought, the thought is that after the, these guidelines have been published, there will more than likely be some endocannabinoid and cannabis questions on the next iteration of the NCLEX test plan. Really? Mm -hmm. So the, the big question mark then becomes, how will nursing schools, schools of education, integrate 
this knowledge because it, it spans the physiological, the anatomy and physiology. It spans pharmacology with understanding the drug-drug interactions. And it also spans the pathophysiology, as we know that medicinal cannabis is showing that it is a very effective treatment as an, either an adjuvant or a single treatment for many of our numerous you know, psychological and physiological diseases. So the question, the big question mark is, will schools of nursing jump in and begin to integrate this, this knowledge, this knowledge building into their courses throughout their curriculum? And if and when, hopefully, knock on wood, they do, this textbook will be there because as I said to in, in the beginning, when you go to any of your pathophysiology or pharmacology textbooks or your med surge textbooks, there is no information about cannabis or the endocannabinoid system. Well, and if they start including questions about the endocannabinoid system on the NCLEX, the schools are going to have to address it. They are. They are. And, and the next test plan is due out, I believe, next year. So it'll be interesting to see if they have decided to incorporate it in that text, in the next test plan, or they're going to kind of give uh, schools a little time to kind of, you know, overcome this, this stigma. Uh, the, the knowledge is there. It's been there for a very long time. And it's just now that the acceptance is becoming more prevalent because of the fact that more and more states are are allowing and allowing uh, nurses and physicians and at least in my state in in Virginia, uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are allowed to recommend. So this is going to be a very huge um, impact across the country at many levels for healthcare. Yeah. Now, you said it's going to be available for purchase. Is it only available to nursing schools and nursing students, or would it be available to the public at large if they wanted to read something on the endocannabinoid system? Or maybe above a layman's term, it may be more clinical in nature. I don't know. Oh, it will be available on, the, I'm sure, the the, uh, the the website that the publisher has. Um, if you're that serious about it, you can go to their website and you can, you, know, you can pull up one of their med surge books. Um, you know, I, you can have, order one of their pharmacology books. So I'm sure this will be available for anybody where the, the big question is, is will be, will the, the textbook be ordered in large numbers uh, for schools of nursing to use? Cause it, the, that's the title of the textbook, the cannabis handbook for nurses. Are doctors, you know, and I know that from what I've heard, nurses or the nursing association is a little more open to cannabis than say like the, the doctor's association. So is, are doctors getting any sort of education on this or are nurses kind of leading the charge in this area? I am not aware of any specific medical schools that are uh, integrating this knowledge as a, as a whole. I do know that there are pockets of education. I know that Pennsylvania, schools of medicine in Pennsylvania have specifically been very proactive because in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of research related to cannabis as medicine. So I am um, I'm pretty sure that that's where that's going on. There is some, I believe, in uh, some of the more progressive states that have already legalized. But I do know that in all of the states where cannabis has been allowed to be recommended by physicians, 
physicians pay continuing educators. And usually that, that depends on the state. It could, I know in Virginia, it's about a three hour course to get an overview of the endocannabinoid system, uh, the endocannabinoids and the, the phytocannabinoids, the phytochemicals, et cetera. So it's not an in-depth study because mm -hmm. again, in their medical program, they didn't have an in-depth look at this because they only looked at it as a drug of abuse. I was curious if you had had a personal experience with cannabis as medicine that kind of led you into this interest or was it just your beliefs as a, as a nurse, we should not limit ourselves to certain particular areas for treatment. My first interactions with cannabis, I, if, if, if um, I'm, I'm, I can make a bold statement, every nurse in the United States is a cannabis nurse. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain why. Uh, back in the 1980s, when the HIV and AIDS crisis first surfaced, um, I was seeing a lot of patients with, of course, the end-stage AIDS uh, syndrome that we had the, the loss of appetite and the, the severe pain and the anorexia, the malnutrition, et cetera, the anxiety, the depression, inability to sleep, irritability. It was just, it was just a very sad time. And at that time, patients were either receiving the legally prescribed Marinol, which has been in our USP, our United States Pharmacopoeia since the 1980s, Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe even before then, I think the 1970s, when the USP added Marinol, which is a, a THC isolate. Really? It's a synthetic T absolutely. It's a synthetic THC isolate that where they take the, just the THC, they synthesize it, and then they put it in a capsule, and then they dispense it to patients to improve their mood, help them sleep, help them with their anorexia. It stimulates their appetite. Um, I also remember back in the 1980s, patients were receiving small little tins of marijuana cigarettes sent to them by the government. What? Um, and yes. <laughs> the, the same government, government that told that has this as a schedule one drug with no medicinal use whatsoever. Absolutely. And so they would get a little prescription of marijuana cigarettes for the month that dealt with their, their end-stage AIDS syndromes. And it, it really did seem to help them a lot. And I, I kind of shook my head thinking, well, this is kind of ridiculous. On one hand, you have the Schedule One, the federal illegal, illegalization of it. But on the other hand, I'm I'm helping my patients smoke a marijuana cigarette and take their marinol pills to to help combat depression and their nausea and their lack of appetite. So it has been really a uh, a schizo I call it the schizophrenic United States of America in relation to cannabis. You know, and then uh, then of course we have in 2003 the the federal uh, patent on cannabis. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it from a logical perspective. You can't have it both ways. It can't be illegal at the, at, the, at the federal level, but yet the federal government holds a patent on it to use it as a neuroprotectant, as an anti-inflammatory, as an antioxidant. So it's, it's just a, it's a crazy time. It's a schizophrenic time. But that's why nurses are here. We're trying to help our patients. It's, it's all about helping our patients negotiate these these problems, negotiate these um, illnesses, negotiate how to, to access it and how to use it appropriately. That's fascinating. I mean, because the 1980s was the height of the Nancy Reagan, just say no. And then, so there's up there saying, just say no. And then they're mailing 
marijuana cigarettes to patients. It's like, what? Yeah. It is schizophrenic. Yeah. They they should probably be prescribed something for that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> you can't search for logic where none can be found. That's peak federal government. Yes. Well, I guess with all those questions answered, I would like you to tell me more about the endocannabinoid system. It just kind of started at the beginning as if I knew nothing about it because what I know, you know, is barely just a little tiny bit. So just whatever you feel comfortable sharing. And and I have no medical background, so so try to put it in, <laughs> try to put it in layman's terms if at all possible. Because, you know, medical, you know, I'll, I can do taxes, but medical stuff, not so much. Okay. Um, well, we owe we owe all of our um, we owe all of our knowledge really to one pioneering uh, scientist from Israel. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Dr. Raphael Meshulam. Mm-hmm. Um, it was him and his colleagues in 1963 that sought to discover and investigate THC, which is of course the intoxicating compound in cannabis. Mm-hmm. And if you've never watched the documentary on on his discovery, uh, it's called The Scientist. It's a fascinating story of how he, um, he, he jokes about how he is probably the only person in the entire world, in the entire history, who walked out of a police station with five pounds of hashish. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that is from where we, we got our study, our, our, our knowledge. And, and so fast forward from the 1960s, and it wasn't until the 1980s. It was not until 1980 when it was finally confirmed through uh, Dr. Alan Howlett at the University of St. Louis that something happened in our body that was related to the THC compound, but the the big question was, what was the human element that that mirrored that mimicked this plant element? Because the the, the scientists we we know that we, our bodies are made to interact and to use uh, what's around us. That's why we have proteins and carbohydrates and fat. And it wasn't until a few years in the 1980s that uh, Dr. Devane and his team found the CB1 receptor in a brain of a rat. And when they found this, they found that it affected the memory, cognition, motor function, uh, appetite, mood, everything that you would think about that comes from THC. So you, you take some THC and you get all of these brain effects. And that's when they discovered the cannabinoid 1 receptor. And, and they, they knew that from that moment on, it was going to be uh, kind of like a, a fast forward, you know, a, a fast train. It was in 1992 that the cannabinoid 2 receptor was discovered, again, by Dr. Meshulam. Um, and this one was found primarily, if the CB1 receptor is found primarily in the brain, and it's responsible for things like mood and appetite and coordination and memory. The CB2 is found in the peripheral system. And more specifically, it is found in the immune and inflammatory system. And this this is significant because with knowing how the CB2 receptor works, it works as an anti-inflammatory. This was a huge discovery because most of, I would have to say 100%, if not all, um, 
not all our diseases, but I would say close to 100% of our diseases, our disorders, are actually related to inflammation in the body. Yes. Something happens in the body, whether it be an autoimmune disease, um, a tissue injury, a genetic disjointing that causes an inflammatory and an immune response. And with this inflammatory and uh, hyperinflammatory response, we start to see the dysfunction in the tissues and in the organs. So this CB2 discovery in the peripheral inflammatory system was extremely significant because scientists then began to think, well, if there's this receptor and it is linked specifically to inflammation, how can we understand both disease and its treatment uh, for, for the disease? And, and why do these two receptors, the CB1 found primarily in the central nervous system and the CB2 found primarily in the peripheral nervous system as an immune modula- modulator, how, how are these working in our body? And it was at that time that they realized that the endocannabinoid system, which is the, the, the receptors and the endocannabinoids themselves, were responsible for the main homeostasis, meaning the balance between our bodies. If you think of our body as a spectrum, we're always, you know, you wake up one morning and you have the flu. Well, now you're more toward the sick side of the spectrum. You're, you're hoping that your body has a appropriate immune response and you have an appropriate and a working immune system that can overcome that flu. So you then start moving back toward the other side of the spectrum, the wellness side of the spectrum. With these endocannabinoids and these endocannabinoid receptors, our bodies uh, balance between disease and health is constantly in play. And that's the main function of our endocannabinoid system is to maintain our body's most significant functions between health and, and illness. And the, there is a thought out there, Dr. Russo, Dr. Ethan Russo has proposed that the lack of endocannabinoids tone, we, has, we were supposed to have uh, a, a balance of these endocannabinoid receptors along with the endocannabinoids that, that bind to them. Mm-hmm. Without this tone, our body begins to dis- disintegrate or actually move more toward an illness state. And this is called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And it's Dr. Russo's theory that things like fibromyalgia and and migraine and irritable bowel syndrome, things that are, are very, very difficult to treat, but yet are specifically related to inflammation, that these endocannabinoid systems are out of balance. And this is probably... This, Another thought uh, along those lines is we have been deficient in endocannabinoids tone and endocannabinoid tone and in phytocannabinoids, the, the, the cannabinoids that we get from plants for the, for the last, what, 70 years since the 1930s when it was outlawed, you know, our, even our, our animals, our livestock are deficient because hemp used to be a livestock crop. Yeah. And even from the small percentages of, of cannabinoids, the, the CBD mainly that we were getting through hemp, we have lost this endocannabinoid tone. So the endocannabinoid system includes the receptors, which I just spoke about, 
And it also includes our own two made hormones or neurotransmitters, our endocannabinoids. We call them our body's own, uh, our body's own marijuana, basically. It, our, uh, the, these two receptors have to bind to something in our body. We, we, don't re we can't rely on a plant for everything. And so that's what these researchers discovered is that there are two endocannabinoid receptors that also will link to two endocannabinoids called anandamide and two arachidonyl glycerol. These two endocannabinoids are made by the same substances that other neurotransmitters are made in our body. And they are the ones that bind to either the CB1 or the CB2 receptor to give us our effects. So one of the best ways I can illustrate anandamide, which was the first endocannabinoid discovered, and it was named by Dr. William Devane, who named it ananda, which means in Sanskrit, bliss. When anandamide binds, say, to the CB1 receptor in the brain, it mimics the same effects that you would get with a THC binding to the brain. And uh, the best way to illustrate this is uh, this is kind of the explanation for a runner's high. Someone right. who does a lot of exercise or feels, you know, an extreme feeling of joy when a baby is born or when something great happens like a graduation, you just get this flush of just wonderful feelings and you, you just feel wonderful and it's, uh, you know, you, you're on top of the world. Those are your endocannabinoids. That's your anandamide uh, interacting and binding to your cannabinoid one receptors in the brain. And so that's one of them. Um, if, if a 2-arachidonyl glycerol binds to, say, a CB2 receptor in the immune cells in the periphery, it stimulates anti-inflammatory responses. It prevents the anti-inflammatory, uh, the chemical messengers from sending an inappropriate inflammatory response. And so that's why we're seeing CB2 uh, or actually CB1 and things like CBD being used to decrease inflammation because it that's exactly what it does. And so with these discoveries of the cannabinoid receptors and the endocannabinoids, it, it was it was game over. We're now going to go down this rabbit hole and we've discovered so many more cannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoids as well. Okay, so there's more than just CB1 and CB2. Absolutely, there are. Oh, wow. Like CBD more plugs into the CB2 receptors. Is that correct? Or do they both, does the, the THC plug into, and the THC is in C, the CB1, or does, do they both do equally with different responses? They'll, they'll both interact with the, both the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Mm -hmm. It's just, if you, have, if you think about uh, the cannabis plant, the THC is the hugest proportion, the hugest concentration. And so that's where you're going to see most of your binding with the receptors. The CBD, if you look at any normal cannabis plant, is a very, very small percentage. And so you're not going to get that that huge effect. And that's why in a plant, yes, we're looking for that full spectrum. Um, we're looking for that full spectrum effect that gives us the entourage effect. But we also know that you're going to get different, uh, different proportions of THC and CBD, depending on the chemovar or, or type of strain that 
you use. But they both will work in both CB1 and CB2 receptors. And so you you said that there have been more uh, receptors that have been found in the body other than CB1 and CB2, which is what we primarily hear about. So how many other receptors have been found and do they think there are still more receptors out there that we haven't discovered yet? Well, the answer to that last question is absolutely. There are lots of more receptors that we haven't discovered yet. Um, this is a such a new science. Even though it's um, 30 years that we discovered the, the actual receptors and the endocannabinoids themselves, uh, we're still trying to link their meaning, uh, look at where they, what they do in the body and how they will interact in all of the physiological systems and organ tissues. Um, so the, the two true endocannabinoid receptors are CB1 and CB2, because these have been shown to have no other function at all except to interact with either the endocannabinoids, synthetic cannabinoids, like I mentioned Marinol, that's a synthetic cannabinoid, and that's why it works, because it interacts with the CB1 receptors or phytocannabinoids, which are, of course, either found in, in cannabis or in hemp, its cousin. But we there has been a whole group of receptors that were, funnily in, uh, enough, called the orphan receptors because scientists couldn't figure out where they fit. They kind of knew what they did, mm -hmm. but in the last, I would say, 20 years, they were not really sure of where they fit in the physiological functions. So they were called the orphan receptors. And these orphan receptors have now been found to interact with endocannabinoids. Hmm. And so why they are not cannabinoid receptors, because they were named before the cannabinoid receptors were discovered, um, they're still called uh, cannabinoid receptors because they will interact with both anandamide and 2-arachidonylglycerol and other endocannabinoids that are being discovered. Interesting. The three orphan receptors are known as G-protein-coupled receptors, and these are receptors that are embedded in many different cells and tissues of our body. And when they're activated by one or more of the endocannabinoids, they will do different things. Um, for instance, let me just uh, think of one. The G-protein known as 119 so it's a GPR, G-protein receptor 119. This is of huge interest to our researchers right now because this particular receptor is only found in pancreatic and intestinal cells. And more specifically in the pancreas, it's found in the beta cells. This should be significant for any, any medical individuals listening because we know that the beta cells of the pancreas do one thing one important thing, they make insulin. So when these G-protein 119 receptors are stimulated by one of, the, uh, one of the endocannabinoids, they control, they will decrease the insulin resistance. They, will, they improve glucose tolerance. They increase glucose sensitivity and insulin sensitivity. They enhance insulin release. And so just from this knowledge alone about this one previously orphaned G-119, scientists are thinking they might have a way to naturally treat diabetes and obesity. Wow. That would be 
huge. It is. It is huge. And so this is one of the orphan receptors that was discovered to interact with these endocannabinoids. Another one that's really interesting is um, what we call the 5-HT3s or serotonin receptors. This was a, another receptor that was discovered, I'd say, back in the 1970s. And they kind of knew that it was um, related to nausea and vomiting and depression and things of that nature. But it's just been within the last, I'd say, uh, 15 years that they realized that these 5-HT3 receptors interact with anandamide. And why that's significant is because anandamide antagonizes or blocks this receptor. And that becomes important because that helps us understand why cannabis and um, natural and endocannabinoids and synthetic cannabinoids will control, help control nausea and vomiting. Because these 5-HT3 receptors are found in the brain that cause nausea and vomiting. So we're learn as the as we're learning more and more about the, the the endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoids that interact with these receptors, we're starting to put together why all of this stuff works. You know, why does cannabis suppress nausea and vomiting? Why does it kill specific cancer cells? Why does it stimulate appetite? And it's if you look beyond the stigma, it it's really science and it's really a huge puzzle that's being put together and and the rabbit hole who knows where it will end who knows when it will end because uh, the if the federal uh, regulations are relaxed and more research is permitted once it's legalized or uh, allowed across the country to to more scientists to look at it who's no, who knows what we're going to find when we when we start to understand how it really works in the body that's i mean that's incredible just the just the two things that you've told me about i mean because diabetes is such a huge what is it like one in three or one or four adults that are are affected by diabetes absolutely and the obesity rates continue to climb mm -hmm. um and there there's just uh, with what we know already for instance with its usefulness in autism and seizures and schizophrenia. I, I'm, I'm teaching. I'm teaching one of the, the nation's first uh, college level uh, medical cannabis certificate course, and so I'm having students that are from all types of holistic uh, practices: you know, acupuncture, massage therapy, nurses, and they're coming into this course and and saying, "Oh my goodness, this is going to revolutionize healthcare." Yeah. Cannabis is the only drug, the only natural drug, I should say, that can do so many things, can do so many things in so many different systems and really has, except for what we know about it as in relation to adverse effects, which are related to these, these high THCs, mm -hmm. this, is, this is one drug that really has no adverse effects. You know, cannabis has never killed anyone in the history of its use. I can't say that about everyone. One of the drugs that I help patients take. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess what does this look like? Now, I know you probably don't know, but you might have some suspicion because, you you know, you've got the FDA that wants to kind of act like a roadblock <laughs> for a lot of things. So, you know, what is the what's the way forward with this? I mean, 
is it going to be subject to FDA approval? Because now CBD oil is under the jurisdiction of the FDA. There's there's all kinds of questions, and we don't know. It's it's kind of ironic that the genie is out of the bottle. The toothpaste yeah. is out of the tube. The toothpaste is out of the tube, and it's not going back. Um, we know uh, we know through research in in states that have been legal as far as both recreational and medicinal, that the majority of, of medical cannabis users in the United States is over 55 years old. It is going to be, I think, a, a revolution that kind of starts at the local level, at the, at the patient level, at the healthcare practitioner level. I know that, uh, let's see, today is July 9th, and tomorrow there is a hearing in Congress about the legalization. So it's going to be interesting. I'm going to try to tune in and, and see what is being said and, and see what the pushback is. I, I have to smirk, smirk when I read in news articles about how um, some some legislators in, in states are saying, well, we're not ever going to legalize it because it's you know potential for overdose when... They yeah. obviously need a lot of education. So that's where our role is, I think, at, at the patient level, is that we're educating. We're making sure that our patients and our communities and our healthcare practitioners understand it. They understand that this is a body system that evolved with us. It evolved in a, a, a very uh, parallel trajectory that allowed us to experience this homeostasis, this balance between illness and wellness. If we didn't have this endocannabinoid system, we wouldn't get things like the runner's high and the, and the joy that we have. And we wouldn't have the anti-inflammatory benefits that we have from our own body. So we've um, got a long way to go, but it's an exciting time to, to be in this science. And as a researcher myself and an educator, I just find it fascinating that all of these puzzle pieces are coming together in our lifetime. Who would have thought growing up that that cannabis would be dispensed as a medicine yeah that's the that's the incredible thing because it's just gotten such a bad rap and and even still you know we're fighting slogging hard against that stubborn 35 or 40 percent who re, who refuse to believe that there are medicinal benefits to this plant yes you're, you're going to have that until the education is overwhelming. Right. And the, the, the more that I've, the more that I read about this and the more that I understand the science behind it, the more it cannot be discounted. Uh, when you have scientists across the world who are investigating it and, and using it in diseases, I, I know in Australia, for instance, right now, researchers are heavily investigating the use of cannabis to treat pancreatic cancer, wow. one of our most one of our most deadly cancers, mm -hmm. and they're 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 showing promising results because of the the beneficial effects of the anti-inflammation and the anti-tumor properties that some cancer strain or some chemo uh, chemovars, some cannabis strains have. So it's it's going to be it's almost it's it's bad until it happens to either you. Or someone you love. Yes. And that's going to be, I think, the biggest game changer is education and, and then recognizing from our scientific investigations where it can all lead to as far as a benefit, you know, a, a, a beneficial treatment instead of, uh, you know, synthetic toxins like chemotherapy and radiation, which are killing good cells along with the, the bad cells. What are your thoughts 
about pharmaceutical companies and, and you know because everybody paints them as the bad guys and, and they stand to lose a lot of money from cannabis legalization especially you know with regards to diabetes and cancer i mean those are two some of the biggest i guess money making drugs for the for the uh pharmaceutical companies Yes, they are. Yes. It's just so sad when I meet with patients and who have diabetes and prior to uh, just a few years ago, their, their insulin was, was a minimal cost to them Mm -hmm. and they need this type of medication to live without their medication. They will not live. So it was, it's very, uh, now I'm hearing how they can't afford their $300 bottle of, of insulin per month. It's they're, they're to the point where they have to choose. Do they, they buy housing? Do they buy food or do they buy their insulin? So it's, it's going to be, I know that there is a movement at, in which there, there's going to be a lot of pushback because in many of our states that have allowed medicinal cannabis legalization, Patients are allowed to grow their own in their own backyard. And we're seeing also movements from local dispensaries saying and local and local growers and, and local processors saying, no, we're not going to want our big pharmaceutical companies in be, to, to change things, to, mm-hmm. to mess with it and then to, to price it. Let's range. A lot of the nurses in our um, ACNA, our American Cannabis Nurses Association, they in states where it's legal to grow, they, they'll grow it and then they'll make the medicine themselves and then give it away. Right. Give it away to patients because they know that in some disp- even in some dispensary models, some of the larger dispensaries that are um, out there now are even pricing it extremely high. So it's going to be uh, at a very interesting time, not only medically and and scientifically, but it's also going to be an interesting time socially and and to see what what types of model models are available as. Uh, the legalization movement grows. No, no pun intended. <laughs> what What are some resources that you could recommend to people who live in legal states, or even states where it's not legal yet, and their physician or you know the the medical practitioner that they use is just completely opposed to cannabis as medicine? What are some resources that they would read and accept? as a legitimate source for information related to the endocannabinoid system in cannabis as medicine? Oh my goodness. There are, are tons out there. Um, whenever I meet with a physician, I always make sure if I, if I'm going with to a physician uh, who, let's just say a neurologist or a general practitioner, it's usually my functional medicine practitioners and my holistic practitioners, they're very open and they're very, um, they're very, um, accepting because they recognize the benefits. But if I'm saying going to a neurologist uh, who's not really sure, I usually uh, take along, there's, there's a lot of information available on the web. And if you just you know, look in your web browser and your internet search, you look for something related to cannabis and let's just say um, Crohn's disease, you're going to have a, a ton of hits. You're going to have a ton of information that you can either read or you can bring with you to your, your visit. And that's usually, for me, is what opens the door to discuss some of this research uh, that is available, that is out there. And it's really current because we have many of our government entities participating in research, the National Institutes of Health, 
uh, the National Institute for Drug Abuse. These are some of our major players in the government level that are funding and endorsing and supporting research into cannabis as medicine. So a lot of this is really starting to disseminate throughout the research communities. And so I would recommend going on the internet, finding a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, recent, because they're out there. There's a lot of great books out there too for, for patients as well to, to read. So these are, um, the internet is full. What I will caution though is um, with this, you mentioned CBD, you really have to be careful where you get your CBD. And that's one thing that nurses are trying to impress upon patients right now is that CBD is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's at every gas station. <laughs> absolutely. Do not buy your CBD from a gas station. You're probably getting no CBD in there. There's probably a few, you know, micro um, milliliters of CBD in this concoction. And it's, we're, we're really trying to help the, the public focus on staying away from these snake oil salesmen. Speaking of CBD, because that's pretty well available to anybody that wants to buy it, what are some brands that you would consider to be trustworthy or quality products? Oh, there's a lot of great ones out there. I, I, um, I myself have been using a CBD product for a extreme shoulder injury that I had. Um, I have a titanium plate, about an 11 uh, inch titanium plate in one of my arms, and oh, it wow. was always um, giving me grief. So um, I brought, I, I started using some CBD uh, tincture from uh, ProCBD.com. That's P-R-O-H cbd.com it stands for pro health um and it it has done incredibly well for me i'm very i'm very pleased with them they have a certificate of analysis Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that the public should be looking for when they're buying their cbd products because it shows what is actually in the product that they're buying and that it's pesticide and um, and um, heavy metal free, and it doesn't contain any microbes that could potentially cause infection. Uh, another one that's really good is the old standard, Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web, of course, was our original anti-seizure uh, pioneer. Um, they they named it Charlotte's Web for the the young little lady that that demonstrated that CBD was effective for decreasing seizures. So they are also a very reputable and they also have a, a good COA, a certificate of analysis. Mary's Medicinals is extremely uh, excellent as far as a product for CBD tinctures and CBD patches. This is something that's also a, a newcomer is a CBD patch. You can wear it on your wrist or on your ankle, and and it helps to dose the CBD in very micro doses. So as it slowly infuses into your system, you get a very long, we call a systemic effect. Yeah. So those are, I think, the, the Pro-CBD, the Charlotte's Web, and Mary's Medicinals. Those are some, some great resources that are very reputable, and you know what you're getting. You, you know that these companies are not gas station companies trying to just to make a quick buck, trying to sell you something that really is not going to work. And, and that's the, the biggest fear that we have is that you buy a CBD product at a gas station, you start using it, you're like, well, this doesn't work. And then you, you give up on it. Well, you're, 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 if you're not buying a quality product, you're not going to get a quality effect. 
going back to those patches for just a second, because that's the first I've really heard of CBD patches. Would it be something, say, you on your shoulder or your arm injury, would you put the patch there or, you know, kind of closer to the, the focus of the, the problem? Or just will it dissipate into the system no matter where you put it? You could put it wherever you need if you I was using it for my my shoulder injury, I would put it near the, my shoulder at for near the, the site where it's it's uh, the most problematic. Uh, people who may people who may have anxiety, which is uh, CBD is a great reducer of anxiety. Yeah, you don't want to put it on your head. No one put it on your forehead. <laughs> so um, the best place for that would probably be your wrist, because that is one of the most vascular places in our body is right okay. there at the wrist. So that's where you would get more of a systemic effect. If you maybe have leg pain uh, or ankle pain or foot pain, I know people who stand on their feet all day might have some type of um, Achilles tendon or what's that called? Plantar's fasciitis where you know, the arch of their foot is fat is flat. Um, they could put it on their ankle and have more of a, a local effect there. What we, what we do with the CBD patches is we, we recommend that you, you get a, you cut it into a quarter, you cut it into quarters, into fourths, and you start with one fourth of that patch and you see how that does. And if that works for you, then you've got plenty of, of product to, to use because, you know, one patch can give you four doses. So it's really a trial and error. That's the other thing that is very unusual about using cannabis as medicine is that it's all trial and error. There are no right. standards. There are no real, you know, go, go home and take two aspirin. No, you know, go home and, and take two um, CBD patches, <laughs> right? You have to really uh, titrate up and down based on the effects you feel because your endocannabinoid system is different than my endocannabinoid system. And that's why some people are, um, you know, some people with all drugs, uh, some drugs will work with some people and some drugs will not work with someone. It's the same with cannabis. I guess that's probably the, the most complicated part of, of treating yourself with cannabis is that you can't just go to the pharmacy and they say, here, take one of these pills every six hours and that's going to fix what ails you. It's always kind of a, a hunt and peck and a trial and error type thing. It is. And and actually, the, the going back to the National Council of State Boards of Nursing Guidelines, they, they note that in every state, do, doctors, nurses, we do not, we do not tell the patient what to take. We recommend this, start with this, or we recommend, you know, do this, but it is up to each patient to decide what works for them. So that's where we work with them. Mm -hmm. That's where we come in is we help them understand what it is, what product that they're buying and what do they need again, because a strain that for, let's say for instance, they need to get up and be functional during the day. So we're not going to recommend that they get a strain high in THC for their daily activities, but yet they still need to control their pain. So we're going to recommend more of a one-to-one, one THC to one CBD during the day. And so that way they can function more effectively during the day without maybe motor function problems or cognitive thinking problems or memory problems. But then at night, maybe they need to have something to help them go to sleep. Or, or have a little bit more pain control. And so then they might have something a little bit higher in THC and lower in CBD. So now they have more of that sleepiness because that's one of the side effects of cannabis mm -hmm. in a THC product is they get a little sleepy. So 
that's where we have to work with the public and helping them understand that all cannabis products are not created equal. They're, they're all different and they're all going to give you different effects. And it's up to you, patient, to say, well, this one worked and this one didn't. This one was too much. This one was not enough. And then we help you kind of find what we call that sweet spot. Just like there's a sweet spot on a baseball bat, you have a sweet spot in your body that will allow you to use the cannabis at its most effective level without the adverse effects. Like if you don't want to fall asleep during the day, well, we're going to try to work with you to prevent you from and, and help you find that one particular strain and that one particular dose that will keep you out of pain all day and yet functional. Sounds like the nurses may be a little bit ahead of the curve with relation to cannabis, and that's that's good to know that you know somebody's kind of trying to drive this and, and and say yes, this is medicine, and we should try to learn more about it so that we can be educated when we talk to patients. So absolutely, and patients are asking about it. Patients are are asking about it, and um, they they should know that they can ask their nurse, and their their nurse will more than likely have an answer for them. Well, thank you so much for your time, Denise. This has been very educational and I I appreciate you taking this time to talk to us about this. And I know I've learned a lot about the endocannabinoid system and and I'm sure we're just kind of barely scratching the surface here. Oh, absolutely. And as, and we are, uh, excited to, to figure out and to and to watch as these investigators, these scientists are really starting to open the doors and helping us understand how all of this cannabis science can be used. Because if the cannabis is, if the, the endocannabinoid system is built within us to maintain and, and provide that balance between illness and health, this is a whole new uh, area of exploration that has never been tapped before. And the opportunities to, to use cannabis as medicine to affect these diseases that are caused by this inflammation and these autoimmune diseases is going to create an, a whole entire new science. And it's such an exciting time to be a cannabis nurse. Yeah, it absolutely is, especially if, since we're kind of see that legalization could be on the horizon. That's just going to open up the gates for the research that can be done in this industry. Absolutely. And and it, it will it will happen. Who knows if it'll have happened in the next five years, in the next 10 years, but I know it will happen. And um, it's a genie is out of the bottle and people are realizing that it's not the bad guy that the, the federal government has led us to believe it is. And maybe this is the conspiracy theorist in me, but my thought is, look, if they're willing to lie to us about a plant for 80 years and then double down on that lie over the course of all this time, what else are they lying to us about? That's true. That's true. But our focus is on cannabis and we're going to make sure that our patients can use it appropriately and safely. And that's our role right now is to educate and to make sure that when it, when a patient wants to know about it, we are going to help them with that. Well, that's great. I'm I'm glad to see that y'all are kind of getting out ahead of this as best you can and and that our nurses will be educated on this because like you said, more and more people are coming in and asking questions and it, it'd be nice to be able to ask your, your, your trusted health advisor for, for that information instead of having to resort to Dr. Google. That's true. That's true. 
Well, the American Cannabis Nurses Association, we have a website. It's uh, cannabisnurses.org. Um, so cannabisnurses.org because we are growing in numbers, pun intended, and we are cultivating our knowledge. And we are, um, we are really, I believe, on the forefront at helping our nurses, first of all, get over the stigma. Uh, uh, quit having to talk about it behind closed doors with our patients We're yes. and with the National Council of State Boards of Nursing kind of now bringing us out in the open, out of the closet, so to speak. Um, the ACNA is really going to be uh, a very important uh, for leader in making sure that all of our nurses are ready to, to work with patients and their cannabis uses. Well, where can folks find you if they want to kind of follow you in the work that you're doing? I, I Well, I'm, I'm as I said, a, a board of member, a board of director member at the American Cannabis Nurses Association. I also have a uh, my own cannabis business. That's a whole story in itself, but it's uh, empirical cannabis, empirical as in scientific, um, and that's actually my motto: the science behind the stigma. And I'm at empiricalcannabis.com, and you can find me on either Facebook or LinkedIn with either my name or my empirical cannabis business. So yeah, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, I'll be sure to put links to the, on the show notes page to both the Cannabis Nurses and then Empirical Cannabis and your Facebook and LinkedIn profile. That way, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, they can. You may regret that's that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's great. In, in Virginia, um, we are just now getting ready to, uh, we, we legalized medicinal cannabis two years ago. Uh, this year, we, we got legislation passed that also extended access through doctors uh, uh, through nurse practitioners and through physician assistants. And I am now starting to get the trickles in for patients and families asking me about it because they know that the local uh, pharmaceutical processors are about to open and they're starting to ask those questions and they, they want to know what it is that they can do for their health that is going to help them. And so I'm really starting to get busy and I love it because when a patient tells you uh, kudos to you for changing the world, um, I know I'm I know I'm in the right place. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks again, Denise, for telling us more about the endocannabinoid system. And we'll put, like I said, we'll put links in the show notes so that everybody can find you and check out what you're doing. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Rachel. And I hope to talk to you again. Oh, that sounds great, Denise. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Show notes for today's episode can be found over at CannabisHealsMe.com slash 54. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I did. If you know someone in the medical field, especially someone who's a nurse, I think a nurse will find this very interesting because of the information we talked about at the first of the podcast where she's talking about the NCNSB or whatever it's called, the, the State Nurses Board, and, and this information on the endocannabinoid system potentially being included on the NCLEX, I think anyone involved in the nursing profession is going to find this episode interesting. If you know anybody who is involved as like a nurse educator or it's an educator in a nursing program, I think you should pass this along to them as well. Maybe they're not aware of these new requirements of what's going to be on the NCLEX. So thanks for listening again. You guys have a great weekend. I'll be back here on Monday with yet another healing story. Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? 
send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments.